to my little friend. Hey everyone, hello and welcome to episode 12 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, aka the BerettaCast. Now before I say another word, if you have a podcast and you'd like your podcast promoted to increase the size of your listener base, and who wouldn't want a bigger listener base, you need a short clip advertising yourself. If you have one and you'd like me to play it every now and then on my show, then drop me a line at podcast at beretta-online.com. That's podcast at beretta-online.com. If you don't have a clip like that, talk nicely to me. Email me on that same address and I can help you make one if I like your podcast. And then I can play it on my show and you can pass it on to other podcasters as well, giving credit where it's due, of course. I'd like to have more podcasts to promote on my show, but other podcasts need to want promotion. And quite frankly, there aren't many podcasts out there that are really uh, visible about saying, here is a clip, you can download it, use it, please promote us. Uh, people tend to be a bit shy in doing that, so don't be bashful. If you have a clip, let me know. Right, on to business. In episode 11, I presented an overview of what's called presuppositional apologetics. Now that overview, for the most part, was favorable. I unpack the idea of a transcendental argument for theism, for the existence of God. I did raise a few complaints along the way about the state of presuppositional apologetics, however. Uh, to get the most out of this episode, episode 12, you really do need to listen to episode 11. As I promised last time, in this episode I'm going to present some apologetical arguments from Alvin Plantinga. Now, although he's not usually associated with the presuppositionalist label, I'm going to argue that actually what Plantinga has given us, as well as other things, is a couple of powerful transcendental arguments for theism, and at least a kind of theism that is very much compatible with Christianity. I want to be clear about what I'm doing in comparing the presuppositionalism that carries that label to the work of Plantinga that I'm going to discuss today. Although I think there are some real philosophical problems hindering the otherwise great apologetics given to us by Van Til, uh, Bansen, and so on, I'm not saying here, ignore them, just listen to Plantinga. I'm not doing that. What, I'm, what I really want to do is to A, introduce the listener who's not already familiar with Plantinga to listen to his work, and B, to say to the fans of Van Til, broaden your horizons, let go of the clique, and step back and ask who, outside of your own circle, is presenting philosophical defenses of ideas that support the approach that you are taking. I think that would be the best possible thing for presuppositionalists to do. Additionally, Plantinga's work has the added bonus of credibility, by which I mean that nobody associates his work with a tiny publishing company somewhere, like a certain group in Tyler, who shall remain unnamed, uh, publishing obscure titles that only people within a tiny yet vocal community will read. Plantinga's work is mainstream philosophy that is taken very seriously by those in philosophy of religion today, whether Christian or otherwise. So 
tap into this resource. Now, a word of warning. Some parts of this episode might be among some of the more philosophically technical material that I've presented thus far, so buckle up, and if you're not already familiar with analytical philosophy, this may be a bit of a crash course, for which I make no apology. At some point, everyone needs a crash course in analytical philosophy. When I'm quoting from Plantinga, obviously I'm using his work. When I'm quoting others in support of Plantinga, or as examples to which Plantinga's arguments apply, or which seek to respond to him, it's a mixed bag. Some of that comes from Plantinga's writing, some of it's from my own research. Not that it matters, but just so you know, I'm not always quoting Plantinga, but a lot of this material obviously will come from him. And by the way, just a note about terminology for new listeners or people who aren't familiar with philosophy. Epistemology, for those who don't know, is the study of knowledge. How do we get knowledge, and what is it that counts as knowledge? So acquiring knowledge is the epistemic task. That's a word that I'll be using uh, from time to time in this episode. So let's get started. The title for this episode is Plantinga and Presuppositional Apologetics. You'll recall in the last episode I referred to a book called Five Views on Apologetics where various scholars get to present their approach to apologetics and then to respond to one another. Well, while responding to John Frame's presentation of the presuppositional method, Bill Craig says what I think many Reformed and other Christian readers of Van Til have surely thought when he said that, quote, Van Til, for all his insights, was not a philosopher, and it has fallen to another to discern the true shape of the argument in the cloud of confusion. End quote. Now, the other that Craig has in mind is Alvin Plantinga. Plantinga's work on philosophy of religion and epistemology, which is, I think, one of his, his real specialties and strengths, is not typically referred to as a transcendental argument of any kind, yet, as Craig notes, and rightly so, much of Plantinga's work, quote, can be seen as an extended transcendental theistic argument. End quote. Plantinga's work on warrant and proper function, now these are terms that I'll be explaining later in the episode, um, clearly illustrate this observation to be true. The, the first of his magisterial trilogy on warrant that he wrote, the first book which was called Warrant, the Current Debate, is committed to showing that all non-theistic accounts of what constitute knowledge fail. In Volume 2 of this trilogy, Warrant and Proper Function, he develops an argument for theism on the basis of the possibility of knowledge, an argument that gave rise to a flurry of discussion in the world of philosophy, philosophy of religion, and actually philosophy of science as well. I'll look at Plantinga's two major arguments in this episode. Firstly, the argument from Warrant, and secondly, what's called the evolutionary argument against naturalism. What I will show is that, like Van Til, Plantinga provides reasons, whether worded this way or not, to think that many beliefs that many people take as secular or religiously neutral are in fact not so, in the sense that they require certain religious presuppositions to make them plausible. So I'll begin with the first of these major arguments, the argument from warrant. Arguably the most important question in epistemology is the question of what counts as knowledge. 
So what is it? Is it just believing something and finding out that you're right? You know, being lucky? Most people say no, and I think rightly so. A popular answer to this question has been, knowledge is justified, true belief. So the idea being that a person is justified in holding a belief, in the sense that they're blameless. They're not you know, making any mistakes in their thinking, and they have reasons to hold a belief. And also, that belief is true. It corresponds to reality. So if your belief is true and it's justified, then, say many philosophers, it is knowledge. It's not just a true belief. It's something you really know. You didn't just get lucky. A decisive objection to this definition has been what's become the notorious Gettier problem by Professor Gettier. In just three pages, his brief paper, Is Justified True Belief, Knowledge?, made it impossible to continue to hold this brief definition. Someone had to come up with a concept stronger than justification. Now, Gettier's objection was something along the lines of, well, what's... And I don't think he actually used this example, but it's an example along the following lines. Let's say you're driving along in your car at 50 kilometers an hour. You don't realize it, but your speedometer is stuck on 50 kilometers an hour. But as it turns out, you really are driving along at 50 kilometers an hour. You look down at your speedometer, and you see that it is indicating that you are traveling at 50 kilometers an hour. So that justifies you holding the belief because you have evidence, you have reasons to hold the belief that you are traveling at 50 kilometers an hour. And, as it turns out, it's a true belief because you are traveling at 50 kilometers an hour. But, as Gettier says, this isn't knowledge. It's just lucky that you got it, that you got the right reading on the speedometer because it just happens to be stuck at the correct speed that you are currently driving. So that's a justified true belief, but it's not knowledge. And that was pretty devastating in the world of epistemology. People had to come up with a stronger concept than justification to avoid this kind of objection. That concept, rather than justification for Plantinga, is what he calls warrant. Reflecting on his earlier surveys of various defective accounts of what warrant is, and I won't go through all of these, but this is his summary, Plantinga notes that they fail to be good enough because they all seem to lack the same thing. And I'll quote at length from Plantinga here. As a first step towards developing a satisfying account of warrant, I should like to call attention to an epistemic value, having epistemic faculties that function properly. The first thing to see, I think, is that this notion of proper function is the rock on which the canvassed accounts of warrant founder. Cognitive malfunction has been a sort of recurring theme. Chisholm's dutiful epistemic agent, who, whenever he is appeared to readily, always believes that nothing is appearing readily to him. Pollock's cognizer will, by virtue of malfunction, have the wrong epistemic norms. Now, these examples won't mean much to you unless you've actually read the way he presents the examples, but you should be able to follow this summary. The coherent but inflexible climber, Dretsky's epistemic agent, whose belief that spot emits ultraviolet radiation has been caused by the fact that spot does indeed emit such radiation. Goldman's victim of the epistemically serend <laughs> serendipitous lesion 
all are such that their beliefs let warrant for them. I think that should probably say lack warrant for them. I've typed my notes out wrongly. In each case, the reason, I suggest, is cognitive malfunction, failure of the relative, relevant cognitive faculties to function properly, to function as they ought to. Okay, so he's just surveyed a whole bunch of uh, potential accounts of warrant, and he says they all fail because they don't take into account the notion of belief-forming faculties that function properly. Plantinga avoids saying that in all circumstances when our cognitive faculties function as they ought to, they provide us with warrant, because sometimes they don't. Sometimes even when our belief-forming faculties work more or less properly, they don't give us warrant. Um, suppose, he says, that you are suddenly transported to a planet near Alpha Centauri. There, says Plantinga, conditions are quite different. And this is the example he gives. Elephants, we may suppose, are invisible to human beings, but emit a sort of radiation unknown on Earth, a sort of radiation that causes human beings to form the belief that, the, that a trumpet is sounding nearby. An Alpha Centaurian elephant wanders by, you are subjected to the radiation, and form the belief that a trumpet is sounding nearby. There is nothing wrong with your cognitive faculties. They're working quite properly. Still, this belief has little by way of warrant for you. Nor is the problem merely that the belief's false, even if we add that a trumpet really is sounding, in a soundproof telephone booth, perhaps. Your belief will still have little by way of warrant for you. Okay, so consider that example. It's not that you'd be violating any epistemic duty in holding this trumpet belief. You're quite justified in holding this belief. But there is a reason, says Plantinga, that it's not quite knowledge. This is because Alpha Centauri and its surrounding areas are not the environment for which we and all our faculties are suited. Okay, Warrant, moreover, cannot just be identified with the state of affairs of functioning properly in the environment suited for the faculties in question, since there are some things that we are more warranted in believing than others. For example, and this is just my example, I believe that I have a name. And I believe that when I was four years old, I came up with the name for my newborn sister. I actually hold these beliefs. The former belief about my name is one that I accept absolutely. Whereas I think my mother tells me that my recollection of when I was four is not as good as hers, and that perhaps I didn't come up with my sister's name. At least I think that's what she's told me. I can't even remember that conversation very well, as we had it over fifteen years ago. Warrant, then, comes in different degrees. And the degree is measured by the extent to which I'm inclined to accept the belief in question. I'm not all that inclined to accept well, I'm partly inclined to accept the belief about what I did when I was four, but I hold it tentatively. So if something had no tendency to produce any belief at all, it could have no warrant, because it wouldn't justify any beliefs. But there is still a further qualification that needs to be made on what warrant is, before we can think of it as that stuff, enough of which makes a true belief count as knowledge, which is how Plantinga refers to warrant. Our belief-forming structures might have more than one function. 
And at times, those belief-forming structures might function properly, but not in a truth-aimed way. You might believe that you will recover from cancer, even though, statistically speaking, the odds are vanishingly small. But holding this belief may serve the function of keeping your spirits high, keeping you out of depression, and so forth. So it, it's, the belief still serves a good function. You know, the, sorry, the belief-forming faculties serve a good function, but it's just not the function of arriving at truth. Okay. Um... Plantinger uses his own example. He uses the example of William James, a climber up on the Alps. He probably used this example because Plantinger has a fondness for mountain climbing. So William James is a climber on the Alps whose survival depends on his being able to jump across a crevasse and to believe that he could, even though this belief was much stronger than the evidence warranted. He had some reasons to doubt it. But this belief actually saved his life, because he made the attempt on the basis of this belief and succeeded. And so this, this belief-forming structure that gave him this belief served a valuable function. However, in both of these two cases, the function served was not the function of obtaining true beliefs, even though there was no cognitive dysfunction in either case. So more qualification is needed. Plantinga uh, finally settles on a way to construe warrant that avoids any foreseeable objection. He says, The best way to construe warrant is in terms of proper function. A belief has warrant for a person if it is produced by her cognitive faculties functioning properly in a congenial epistemic environment according to a design plan successfully aimed at the production of true or verisimilitudinous belief. Google the word verisimilitudinous. This paragraph from Plantinger is the first time and the last time I have ever encountered that word in the English language. Here we run into what Plantinger says is a problem for a naturalistic concept of warrant when we explore the idea of proper function. Because to say that something has a proper function is equivalent to saying that there is a, a way that this thing is meant, dare we say intended, to function. In the mid-20th century, Errol Harris outlined the two major objections to explaining physical processes with any appeal to teleology or goal orientation. Because proper function is a goal-oriented thing. It's, it functions in a certain way because that's what it's supposed to do. It's aiming at something. So Errol Harris says, First it is maintained, teleology is supposed to be the causal operation in the present of future events. A teleological process is one that is purposive and seeks a goal so that every event in it must be explained by reference to this goal which determines the course of the whole process. Now, it is held to be impossible to understand how a future event, the goal, can causally influence an event that precedes it. And teleological explanation is therefore explanation obscuri per obscurius, which just means it's really obscure. The case of human action is understandable, so it is alleged, in terms of consciousness and intention. 
we are aware of our purposes and aim at them consciously, so our actions are caused not by a future event, but by our present awareness and the intention to act which we consciously form. But, it is argued, teleological explanation in other cases, where consciousness may not be presumed, cannot be justified. This is the second main objection. Human action, and possibly that of some higher vertebrates, may be explicable in terms of consciousness, but in the case of invertebrates and lower species, such explanation becomes highly dubious. When we turn to physiological processes, such as those of metabolism, or the process of morphogenesis and phylogenesis, any account presuming consciousness direct, conscious direction is plainly inadmissible, and teleological explanation is ruled out altogether. In other words, we as conscious beings can project our desires about the future and gear our present activity towards achieving those goals, but in the world of nature, to say that a structure in an organism has come about in order to meet a future goal, from a naturalistic point of view, is simply impossible, because that would imply that something is consciously controlling processes in light of a desire about the future. I mean, if there is no consciousness involved, then a future state of physical affairs clearly cannot influence the past. So teleology in nature, from a naturalistic point of view, is deeply problematic, highly dubious, and in fact ruled out altogether. Writing sli slightly later than this, Francisco Ayala exhibits the tendency to switch without differentiation between genuine forward-looking teleology in scientific explanation and the backward-looking conduciveness of certain inherited traits in the evolutionary process. And I think this is, sorry scientists, I love and respect what you do, but I think it's a tendency of scientists who aren't, perhaps aren't <laughs> down with the whole philosophy of science thing, to put it gently. Uh, Francisco Ayala says, Darwin recognized and accepted without reservation that organisms are adapted to their environments and that their parts are adapted to the functions they serve. Fish are adapted to live in water, the hand of man for grasping, and the eye is made to see. He's switching there. Darwin accepted the facts of adaptation, then provided a natural explanation for the facts. One of the greatest accomplishments was to bring the teleological aspects of nature into the realm of science. He substituted teleology for a theological one. The teleology of nature could now be explained, at least in principle, as the result of natural laws manifested in natural processes, without recourse to an external creator, or to spiritual non-material forces. At that point, biology came into maturity as a science. He is wrong. Notice the way that Ayala draws no distinction between being suitably adapted for survival in a given setting and having a certain feature for a certain purpose. It's a different sense of the word for. The fact that fish are adapted to live in water 
is set next to the fact that the hand of man is made for grasping and the eye is made to see, as though nothing different were being said, even on a semantic level in each case. Now, no one would doubt that Darwin gave an account of the former occurring, that is, things being adapted in such a way that makes them suitable for a certain environment, sure. That's just how natural selection works. So organisms uh, that did not adapt in the best way for the purposes of surviving in the environment in which they lived stood a lower chance of surviving than those whose adaptations turned out, you know, after the fact, to be more conducive to survival. That's what it means to be well adapted for something. But saying that something is well adapted to survive is very different from saying that something adapted to survive. Do you see that difference there? In the former case, the adaptation was accidental, and the survival appropriateness of the adaptation was determined after the fact, whether they survived or not. In the latter case, the adaptation took place for the purpose or intent of surviving. Very different. To speak as Ayala did then is not at all to speak of a natural teleology as a replacement for a, for a theological one. It was just to carelessly fail to distinguish between fortunate adaptation and teleological adaptation. Do you see the difference? I hope you do. In fact, um, more recent and I think more careful Darwinian, Darwinist, I don't know what the proper word is, writers have underlined the fact that naturalism point-blank rules out the possibility of genuine teleology in the evolutionary process. In urging the scientific community to, quote, keep creation out of the classroom, Anna-Marie Gillis tells us that, quote, what makes Darwin's thinking such a challenge is that he refuted purpose and teleology. I think that when she says refuted, she means denied, an unfortunate but common word usage. So she realized that Darwin was actually denying purpose and teleology, and he was, he really was. The message here is that, according to Gillis, in order to keep religious mumbo-jumbo out of classrooms, evolution must be taught with no concept of teleology or intent. Plantinga concurs that if we do not start out with metaphysical naturalism, sorry, if we do start out with metaphysical naturalism, then the teleological concept of a proper function or a design plan is really hard to justify. In fact, it, it pretty much is ruled out. Take Richard Dawkins' famous paragraph, minus what Plantinga has called, uh, with reference to other writers, as a healthy dose of as-we-now-knowism. Take Dawkins' famous paragraph to be archetypal of naturalistic views of a metaphysical naturalist's take on evolution, as far as purpose and intent is concerned. He said, all appearances to the contrary, sorry, all appearances to the contrary. The only watchmaker in nature is the blind forces of physics, albeit deployed in a very special way. A true watchmaker has foresight. He designs his cogs and springs and plans their interconnections with a future purpose in his mind's eye. Natural selection, the blind unconscious automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparently purposeful form of all life has no purpose in mind it has no mind and no mind's eye 
It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. If it can be said to play the role of the watchmaker in nature, it is the blind watchmaker. Now, given that you concur with Dawkins, i.e., you are a naturalist, Plantinger asks, and I quote, "Can you then properly employ the notion of proper function in epistemology?" End quote. Well, Plantinger surveys three main ways of making this attempt. And he argues that they all fail. Now, I don't want to present a reproduction and defense of Plantinga's argument, so I'm going to try and summarize fairly briefly. Good luck sometimes when you're trying to summarize Plantinga briefly. First is the view of proper function suggested by Pollock, but which Plantinga takes to be widely popular in the oral tradition, that is, hang around on enough blogs, talk to enough scientists, and you'll hear this. Namely, the view that to have a proper function is to have a statistically normal function. So Pollock says that in the case of a machine, it is functioning normally when it is not broken and malfunctioning. He realizes that this creates a problem since we interpret such talk about machines by appeal to the intentions of the designers, and we can't have that uh, because he's a naturalist. So instead, Pollock proposes that the generalizations we make about the proper function should be based on facts such as that it is rare to have a heart attack. It's rare to have a stroke. Those things are not statistically normal, so we are not functioning properly when those things take place. Okay. I think that's an adequate summary because that really gets to the heart of it. Um, there are some quotes summarizing him where he uses logical uh, notation, but there's no need to do that. So it's statistical normality that makes something a proper function. Plantinga summarizes thus, according to Pollock, the functional generalization, human hearts circulate the blood, is true just if there is a structure type human hearts tend to display, and anything having that structure type circulates the blood. If things of a type, as a statistical rule, do something, then anything else of that type functions properly if it also does that. To some that might sound initially plausible, but on a few minutes serious reflection that is just unbelievable. Statistical normativity cannot reasonably be equated with proper function. Let me give you some examples that should hopefully show you this immediately. If Africa, God forbid, if Africa became so infested with AIDS that most Africans had AIDS, we wouldn't say that an African without AIDS was dysfunctional, would we? Even though it was statistically normal for an African to have AIDS, AIDS would still not be a proper function of the human body. It would be a dysfunction. Most adult male domesticated cats have been neutered. Do non-neutered male domestic cats suffer from a lack of proper function? No, they've got more proper function. You know, and as soon as you realize that this, these kinds of examples are lurking, the you you see straight away that the list of examples runs into the millions. Being statistically normal is not a necessary or a sufficient condition of being a proper function. If, and this is Plantinga's example, massive radiation caused by a nuclear war led to widespread mutations causing the optical nerve to alter so that people were born blind and lived in constant terrible pain, 
It would be very strange to say that human visual systems in general, in general function properly, still, in spite of this radiation, you know, disease or whatever you want to call it, even though, you know, they all function in the same way, so that's statistically normal. We would still say that families who escaped this condition would produce visual systems that function properly, even though they were not statistically normal. Or consider a superstitious early human culture that breaks the left leg of every newborn baby as a right to appease their gods. After a few generations, that would be normal, to have you know, a damaged left leg. It would be normal and functioning properly in the sense that Pollock requires, but actually, legs like that do not function properly compared to the legs of a child of an impious and unholy family that does not appease the gods in this way. So this view of proper function is just hopeless. It's false. Okay, so we need another contender. Secondly, then, Ruth Millikan proposes a, no a notion of proper function that, unfortunately, cannot be neatly summarized because it's very confusing. She proposes the following conditions for something being called a proper function where M is a member of a reproductively established family R, and R has the reproductively established or normal character C, M has the function F as a direct and proper function if and only if 1. Certain ancestors of M performed F. 2. In part because there existed a direct causal connection between having the character C and performance of the function F, in the case of these ancestors of M, C correlated positively with F over a certain set of items S, which included these ancestors and other things not having C. If this sounds confusing, just, just wait. 3. One among the legitimate explanations that can be given of the fact that M exists makes reference to the fact that C correlated positively with F over S, either directly causing reproduction of M or explaining why R was proliferated and hence why M exists. This account is, to put it mildly, by no means straightforward, and I think Plantinga does very well to identify why these features are neither necessary nor sufficient as an account of proper function. Firstly, it can't be true that having ancestors is necessary in order to have a proper function. In the work that Plantinger is citing from Millikan, Millikan makes it quite clear that she is interested in proper functioning per se, hence including devices as well as natural organisms. She's quite clear about that. But this means that in order for televisions, hacksaws or, or jumbo jets to have a proper function, they must have ancestors, which is just crazy. You know, how many Mr. and Mrs. Jumbo Jet do you know? Moreover, it is certainly conceivable for God to have created Adam and Eve in an immediate act of special creation. And if he did, even if we don't believe that this happened, then Adam and Eve's various body parts would have a proper function, even though they don't have ancestors. So the condition of having ancestors is not a necessary condition for having proper function. Nor, argues Plantinga, is the account Millikan offers a sufficient one, a point he makes by way of another of his very creative 
thought experiments. I wish I was this good. <coughs> I'll quote at length again. He says, <coughs> A Hitler, Hitler, a Hitler, <laughs> like madman, gains control. As part of his Nietzschean plan to play God, he orders his scientists to induce a mutation into selected non-Aryan victims. Those born with this mutation can't see at all well. Their visual field is a uniform shade of light green with little more than a few shadowy shapes projected on it. When they open their eyes and use them, furthermore, the result is constant and severe pain, so severe that it is impossible for them to do anything except barely survive. They are unable to listen to music or read or write poetry or literature. They can't do mathematics or philosophy or evolutionary biology. They can't enjoy humor, play, adventure, friendship, love, or any of the other things that make human life worthwhile. Their lives are poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Hitler and his henchmen also begin a systematic and large-scale program of weeding out the non-Aryan non-mutants before they reach reproductive maturity. The mutation spreads. It gets out of control. After a few generations, the bulk of the world's population displays it, and the number of non-mutants dwindles. But then, consider some nth generation mutant M. He is a member of a reproductively established family, and has a certain reproductively established character, C, the relevant part of which involves his visual system. He has ancestors, and among his ancestors there was a causal connection between that character and the way their visual systems performed, which accounts for the positive correlation of that character with that way of functioning among his ancestors. Because they weed out the non-Aryans, you see. Condition 3 is also met. One among the legitimate explanations of his existence makes reference to the fact that his, this character C is correlated positively with this way of functioning. For this way of functioning conferred a survival advantage, in that Hitler, his thugs, and their successors were selectively eliminating those who did not display it. But wouldn't it be wrong to say that M's visual system is functioning properly? Or that its function is to produce pain in a visual field that is uniformly green? Or that the resistance med medical technicians who desperately try to repair the damage are interfering with the proper function of the visual system. End quote. He's very good at what he does. Since in the above scenario, having what we would regard as a crippling defect contributed to one's survival suitably in just the way that Millikan says meets the criteria of proper function, either that criteria must be defective, or in the above scenario we really should regard a horribly debilitating eye defect as an instance of proper function, which is highly implausible. Another example might be the leg-breaking culture. Suppose that a person with no broken legs has a hard time mating, because they are different, and it is thought wrong to mate with them on the basis of superstition. A broken leg, a broken, you know, hideously broken leg, meets the criteria that Millikan lays down, entailing the bizarre thought that a broken leg entails, in this culture at least, proper function, while an unbroken leg does not. So that doesn't look very promising. So that's not that's that's a loser when it comes to um, candidates for what counts as warrant, sorry, as proper function. Thirdly, 
John Bigelow and Robert Pargetter identify precisely the problem of having some of something having a proper function, and in an attempt to solve it, they offer an account of function in which an organ or a system has a function if and only if it confers a survival propensity upon its owner in its owner's natural habitat. In each case, they tell us, quote, the natural habitat of the item in question will be a functioning, healthy, interconnected system of organs or parts of the type usual for the species in question. End quote. And so an organism, sorry, an organ that ordinarily confers survival propensity might be functioning properly, but it might not converse survival propensity because another organ nearby is not functioning properly, and so it is not in its natural habitat. Now whatever else the authors might have offered then, it cannot succeed as a naturalistic analysis of warrant, because it is circular. What they have offered also, says Plantinga, is neither a sufficient nor a necessary condition for the proper function on other grounds as well. It's not sufficient because there are cases when a, an organ or organism might confer a survival-enhancing propensity, but not be functioning properly. The search for an unproblematic and entirely naturalistic account of proper function, then, is not productive. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us with a powerful anti-naturalistic argument, says Plantinga, and here is why. I'll quote from him again. So suppose you are a naturalist, and are convinced that there is no way to make sense of the notion of proper function from a naturalistic perspective. And suppose you are unwilling to take refuge on the philosophy of as if. By the way, that just means living as if there were a proper function, even though you were pretty sure you couldn't account for it. He goes on, Then you do have a serious objection to the analysis of warrant I propose and you will have to reject it. Indeed, you will have to reject the notion of proper function as well. If you are dead certain naturalism is true, you will have to accept the cost not only of rejecting this account of warrant, but of rejecting the very idea of proper function. A high price, no doubt, but no more than what a serious naturalism exacts. But suppose, on the other hand, you are convinced, as most of us are, that there really is such a thing as warrant, and really are, for natural organisms, such things as proper function, damage, design, dysfunction, and all the rest. You think there really are these things, and are unwilling merely to take the functionalist stance, then if you, are all, if you also think there is no natural analysis of these notions, what you have is a powerful argument against naturalism. Given the plausible alternatives, what you have more specifically is a powerful theistic argument. Okay, so the argument is what's known as an extended disjunctive syllogism, and it goes like this. 1. Knowledge entails warrant. Okay, you can only have knowledge if you have warrant for your belief. It can't just be a true belief. So, knowledge entails warrant. 2. Warrant entails proper function. 3. Proper function entails theism. 4. Therefore, 
knowledge entails theism. Now, where have we heard that before? You heard it in the previous episode. Granting that the argument is and will continue to be subject to critique and revision, it is perfectly plausible that a religious person might find it very convincing and unlikely to be defeated. If so, he will be convinced, as I, by the way, am convinced, that anything he thinks he knows can only be known given certain theological truths. And, in fact, any person's claim to know anything can only be true given those same theological truths. So that's the first transcendental argument from Plantinga that I want to look at. Now, I was about to say that I'll go away for a short break and then come back with the second argument from Plantinga, but I've just looked at the timer and I see that this is going to take two episodes. So I'll just end it for now. That's the first argument from Plantinga. Tomorrow I'll come back, well, tomorrow, next episode anyway, I'll come back with the second argument from Plantinga, the evolutionary argument against naturalism, and then I'll sum up uh, with the comparison between presuppositionalism in general and Plantinga's philosophy. But for now, it's time for another one of these. This week in history, the week 6th to 12th of July. July 6th, 1415, Jan Hus... Jan Hus, as we say these days, condemned as an arch-heretic by the Council of Constance and turned over to the state for execution. Jan Hus sang a hymn as the flames engulfed his body in a meadow just outside the city walls of Constance. July 7, 1456, Joan of Arc was formally acquitted, even though she had already been executed, burned at the stake 25 years earlier. It's the thought that counts, right? July 7, also 1934, in response to pressure from Catholic bishops, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America adopted a strict policy that barred filmmakers from depicting, quote, excessive and lustful kissing, methods of crime, seduction or rape, profanity, illegal drug traffic, sex perversion or, get this, miscegenation. I think that's pronounced correctly. That is, interracial romance. Religious leaders were not to be portrayed as comic characters or as villains. The censorship office was run by Joseph I. Breen, an allegedly anti-Semitic Catholic from Philadelphia who had previously served commissioner of the Na National Catholic Welfare Conference. Breen once declared that I am the code, and he described himself as the only person, quote, who could cram decent ethics down the throat of the Jews, end quote, who controlled the major movie studios. Also July 7th, 1947, Aliens land in Roswell, New Mexico, and the U.S. military salvage the remains and cover the incident up. July 7th, 2005, suicide bombers detonate bombs on London's transport system, killing themselves and 52 civilians. July the 8th, 1099, the First Crusade. 15,000, 15,000 starving Christian crusaders march around the walls of Jerusalem apparently hoping that the walls, like those in the biblical account of Jericho, would simply fall down. In case you're wondering, they were unsuccessful. July 8, 1741. Colonial Congregational Minister Jonathan Edwards throws exegesis to the winds and preaches his classic sermon at Enfield, Connecticut, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. July 10, 48 B.C. 
Talk about close calls. Julius Caesar barely, just barely avoids a catastrophic defeat to Pompey in Macedonia. July 10th, 1509, the French Protestant reformer John Calvin is born in Neon, France. Neon? I think it's Neon. July 10th, 1985, Greenpeace vessel The Rainbow Warrior is bombed and sunk in Auckland, New Zealand by French agents. The most significant act of international terrorism conducted in New Zealand and it's conducted by the French. July the 11th, 1511, Pope Clement VII excommunicates England's Henry VIII for remarrying after his notorious divorce. And lastly, July 12th, 1933, the United States Congress passes the first federal minimum wage law in the United States. The rate was 33 cents per hour. And on that note, yet another episode of Say Hello to My Little Friend draws to a close. Do come back. Episode 13 is next, where I will continue uh, looking at the work of Alvin Plantinga, in particular his evolutionary argument against naturalism. So until then, this is Glenn saying... Farewell for now from Say Hello to My Little Friend.